hello, and welcome to the History of India podcast. This is Series 4, Episode I, The Cheer of Twigs. I'm moving house at the moment, so the sound quality is going to be just a little bit off this episode. Next episode, though, hopefully will be perfect with a new microphone and a new setup. This moving of house got me thinking about the place that I grew up. I grew up in England near a a village, and next to the village was some common land where people would graze their sheep. And the other side of the common land was a market town. Market towns in England have these ring of villages around them. Now, to my younger self, all of that seemed very boring and very inevitable. That was just the way the world was. But what my younger self didn't see was that I was growing up in a a place of wonder. The village, for example, that was a village which gave honey to William the Conqueror, the man who most recently invaded England, according to the English. The common land, that was an ancient rite which was fought over. The market town, that was best of all. The market towns of southern India were formed by Alfred the Great, a king. He's this sort of bookish, almost geeky, religious type of king. And his land gets invaded by Vikings. And he's beaten back so badly that at one point, all he has left is this island in the middle of a swamp. But he fought back and he beat back the Vikings. And as he did, he went around building structures that would make sure the Vikings could never take his land from him again. So he built burrs. They're fortified towns. They've got a rampart, a dry moat. Very often they're in a river's curve or something like that. And these were built so that every village in his land was near one. And he built roads connecting the villages to the nearest burr so that people could flee if the Vikings came to the fortified town and also so that Alfred's soldiers could come out and track the Vikings. Over the centuries, these burrs became the centre for the village markets. It's natural enough, cattle and crops being driven along Alfred's roads. Even today, the English call the ring of villages around the market town a borough. Anyway, that's very roughly the story. For more, check out the excellent History of England podcast. I'm pretty sure... The young version of me would have been thrilled as he's going to the market town along that road to know about its history. All of this is me getting a bit sentimental, but it did make me think about where I am now, living in India. And if you follow this road outside my window, not too much further along, you see a series of hills, sort of rocky outcrops, not too many trees. The grass is clinging onto them most of the way up, but at the top it's just bare rock. Pretty commonplace around here, you see lots of them. In the rainy season, you get streams starting to form, and they combine at the bottom into a small little river. It flows eastward towards the Indian Ocean. Now, I could be talking about any of a dozen different hills near me, but I thought it might be good to try and see this river's place in history, to chase down that river to the sea and see how the landscape around it was formed, to see that it wasn't inevitable. So this week, we're discovering the history of Tondai Nadu, the land of twigs.
We'll hear about that river valley and the surrounding hills. First, in the time before history began. And then we'll get an update on what happened in the valley since the last time we were there, about a season or so ago. And third, we'll hear about the early Pallava kings, how they shaped the area, including meeting an old friend, the author of last episode's play. Ready? Let's follow that river. Tondai Nadu. That's the land that our river flowed through, the ancient name. It's a region about the size of Wales or New Jersey. In ancient times, it was a little bit cut off from the world. To the east, by the Great Indian Ocean, not yet travelled by many ships. To the south, some low hills sheltered it from the big ancient kingdoms. To the north, and curving round to the east, the lands held in by a great forest and mountains, the Guts. One of the Sangam poems, ancient South Indian poems, acts as a sort of poetic travel guide, directing the reader through the region towards the capital. And the land that it reveals is often pretty empty of people, speckled with a few small settlements. Travel through the hills with their small villages of raiders, although the poem claims none of them are raiders. Through the great forest, out onto the plains where the cattle roam. Down there, there's not too much agriculture. These guys are herders, they're not farmers stuck in the soil. And out on the plains, the land is dry. Here and there, scrubby trees break up the monotony. The monsoon rains come here, of course, as they do over all of India. And in the rainy season, the river winds its way through the valley, the river Pala, the very same river that starts just down my road. But here, in the shadow of the mountains, the rain isn't always reliable. It doesn't always fall heavily or at the right time, especially in the north of this region. And after the rains have gone, the river slows. It stumbles into pools of mud, and then it dries out entirely. The guidebook takes us on along the dry riverbed until we come to the great city of Kanchi. Modern times, it's a, a mid-sized city called Kanchipuram. One historian called it, really rather unkindly, I think, comparatively dull. In ancient times, though, Kanchi was a, a different thing. We don't really know where the name came from Kanchi, by the way. There are a few theories. My favourite is that there were a bunch of Kanchi trees, a forest of them, and, and the city was built over this forest. But much more likely, it means something like Place of Devotion. The name Place of Devotion suits the city of country very well, because even by the time of our earliest records, it was a place of devotion. There were lots of Jains there, and there were also people following Brahminical orthodoxy. Early on, the city seems to have had a special place in the minds of ancient Indian Buddhists. One story goes that the son of the minister of the king was there, and he was so gifted and so sharp of mind that the king bestowed a greater honour on him. The king said, you, although you're just the son of a minister, you marry my own daughter, the princess. 
Unfortunately, the minister's son wasn't very interested. And that put him in really quite a tight spot. I mean, you can hardly turn down a king's offer of marrying his daughter without insulting her, and even worse, without insulting the king. The fateful day came when the marriage was due to take place. And the boy, desperate for a way out, went to pray to the Buddha. And his prayers were answered, because the next thing he knew, he was in this windy cave high up in the mountains. From the corners of the cave, eyes appeared in the gloom. As his eyes adjusted, he started to see this cave was a Buddhist prayer hall. And monks were watching him, whispering to themselves. They decided that he was a thief. The boy must have had a really sharp mind and a really fast tongue, because he managed to persuade them that he was no thief, and in fact, they agreed to let him join them. That's about as dramatic an escape from marriage as you can hope for. It's even said that the Buddha himself came to country, that he preached there and converted both men and gods. Ashoka the Great, the Emperor of India from the first series, is supposed to have built a great stupa to commemorate the event just to the south of the city, and his brother is supposed to have built a monastery. And in fact, there are some Buddhist remains outside the city. When history opens the book on this land, Kanchi was already an important city in the area then. and It was going to become even more important, a new sort of centre of learning, a home to the great philosophers of the age, the birthplace of a new style of art and architecture, and most of all, a place of devotion, not to Buddhism, but to Brahminical orthodoxy sects, sacred to Shiva, sacred to Vishnu. It became so important as a centre of devotion that it took its place alongside the great cities we've already visited, Ujjain, Varanasi, Mathura, as one of the seven holy cities of Hinduism, centres of pilgrimage. These are cities where, according to some, if you die there, you achieve salvation. Six of the seven holy cities are in North India. Only one is in the south, the city of Kanchi. When we left South Indian history a couple of seasons ago, the land was carved up into three kingdoms. The Cholas, based on a river south of where we are in this episode. The Pandyas, further south than that, towards the very tip of India. And the Cheras, over on the other side of India, on the west coast, modern-day Kerala. And in amongst the three crown kings were a bunch of smaller kings and chiefs and what have you. In the time since then, South Indian history has fallen into a dark age. They still tell the story in the schools of Tamil Nadu. The Dark Age of the Calabras. The Calabras came from God knows where, outside Tamil lands. And they rushed in and they destroyed all that they found. Tamil culture, South Indian culture in general, was put on hold for three centuries, from the 3rd to the 6th. They imposed an alien way of looking at the world, and they imposed the alien beliefs of Jainism and Buddhism, until finally they were overthrown by the rival of the Shaivite saints. And this 
the Calabra Interregnum, the suspension of way of life, was at last over. Proper Tamil, proper South Indian culture was reinstated. At least, that's roughly the story that you can hear in school, apparently. And the story might be true, we just don't know. Because for a kingdom that's supposed to have covered all of South India, and supposed to have lasted three centuries, the Calabra is left surprisingly little. Not a single inscription. Not a single building. A dozen coins, which might be theirs, perhaps, and the name of a couple of their kings, probably. There's such little evidence that a while back some historians started to even doubt the existence of the Calabras. It caused quite a bit of upset. This is part of some people's identity. But since then, we've found another inscription or two from other dynasties which clearly mention the Calabras as rivals. So they really did exist. Still, parts of this standard story of the Calabra interregnum could do with a bit more evidence. For example... I can't quite convince myself that we know that the Calabras were outsiders, were non-Tamils. Almost everyone seems to assume that they were. Some people say that they were hill tribesmen or they were from North India. But I've not been able to find any ancient source supporting any of these ideas. The closest I can find is an inscription which says that a king called Calabran, probably a Calabra you'd assume, invaded the land where we are in this episode. That doesn't show they were from outside South India, outside Tamil lands. It only shows that they came from outside the valley of the Pala River. Although I should admit that that part of the inscription is in Tamil, and I can't speak a word of that, so I'm relying on translations here. Or take the common assumption that the Calabras were Jains. Just can't find any ancient evidence for this, other than the fact that lots of South Indians at the time were Jains. So... The story of the Calabra's three-century-long interruption, this Dark Age, is a good one, but it's not well supported by the evidence. On the other hand, frankly, we don't have a better story either. Whether or not ancient folk living in our valley suffered a Dark Age, ancient Indian historians certainly do. The great rulers of this land were the Pallavas. They ruled a great kingdom, not always in its size or its longevity, but always in its artistic achievements. A favourite game of ancient Indian historians is match the word origin inferred. It's a simple game for great minds, and it goes like this. You want to find out where someone or some group of people came from originally, so you take their name, and then you find names that sound a bit like it. And you say, hey, one must have come from the other. Sometimes you can play the game with a few more complicated rules. Maybe you can match the name with another that sounds like it, and match that name with another that sounds like it, and so on until you make your connection. In a game of ancient Indian dynasty Chinese whispers. Or maybe you're allowed to swap the name for another one that means the same thing. Or maybe you're allowed to use it in a different language. The whole game can get pretty twisted and complicated. Well, people love playing this game to work out the origin of the Pallava dynasty. 
The first attempted play was to match Pallavas with Pallavas and to match that with Parthians. Yeah, Parthians is in the chaps from modern day Iran. Points for a double name match here, but big minus points for implausibility. According to this theory, that the Iranians and the Parthians managed to go almost all the way through India without anyone noticing and then set up a homeland. Overall, a disappointing start to the game. A much better play at the game, a much more fiddly one, starts with one of the Tamil epics. Over the course of the episodes, we've heard the tale of the anklet, uh, the Silla Patikaram. Someone Tamil recently pronounced it to me correctly, and it was completely unlike that, so apologies to all Tamil speakers out there. Anyway, it's a fabulous story. Towards the start of the story, the husband of the heroine becomes infatuated with this dancing girl, goes off to another city, and spends all of the family's money on her. And the tale of the anklet goes on to reveal what happened when the husband returned back to the heroine, how they went to a new city trying to make a new life together. Spoiler alert, if you need spoiler alerts for ancient Indian texts, the husband dies and she burns the place down. The Tale of an Anklet is a great story. You should definitely read it. And so good it is that it has a sequel. Written probably not that long after it, And the sequel is about the story of the daughter of the husband and the dancing girl. She is called Mani Mekalai, which means something like young creeper. And initially she followed the profession of her mother. She became a courtesan. The sequel picks up even before the first story ends. So Mani Mekalai and her mother are late for their cues on stage. They refused to come out and please the crowd waiting for them because they've just heard of the death of the husband, Mani Mekalai's father. And they decide on the spot to give up the courtesan life and to become Buddhist nuns. The epic tells the tale of Mani Mekalai going around southern India doing good in a Buddhist sort of way. And that sounds a bit worthy, I know. But wait. Mani Mekalai has a magic bowl which never empties, which is handy for doing good in all sorts of situations. There's a a woman who is cursed to always feel hungry, and she's cured. There's a prince husband in a former birth who pursues her and gets killed. And Mani Mekalai can't even touch this, this man, her former husband, in his death. So set is she on the path of doing good. Mani Mekalai even makes her way to Kanchi, where she saves people from a famine with her magic bowl, and then finally achieves enlightenment. Along the way, this story tells us about the king of the Cheras. His name was Kili, not on the test. And he had a pretty good job, for a king at least. Relatively easy. He ruled the great city of Kaveripuram, also not on the test, where the great river meets the sea. And he had a simple job. Simply that he should never miss celebrating the festival of Indra. Otherwise, the ocean would come and swallow the city. But that's easy enough. The festival of Indra only happened once a year. No problem, just celebrate it each year and your city and your kingdom will be secure. One day... He was roaming around the countryside, 
And there he ran into a Naga princess, as you do. She was called Pilivaloi. And they got intimate. After about a month of enjoying a passionate romance, she left. She went back to her homeland, and there, a bump was soon showing. She was pregnant. Once the baby was born, the baby of the king, she went down to the docks in her homeland, and she found a merchant, his hands jingling with bracelets, and she passed the baby over to him, telling him to sail the child back to his father, the king. The merchant gladly accepted. The ship set out into the waters, but not long after, whilst it was still in clear water, where you could still see the sharks, the ship broke. That's all that it says in the text, that it broke nothing more, and it fell into the sea as a golden needle into a thick woolen carpet. Not everyone died, though. Some of those on board managed to survive. And they crawled to shore, and they went and they found the king of the Cholas, the father of this baby. And they told him about what had happened. And the king was grief-struck. He dropped what he was doing, and he went down to the shore. And he wandered up and down, hoping, praying for a sight of his child. He spent so long going up and down the shore that the festival season started. The festival of Indra. The king missed the festival, and the capital was swallowed by the sea. Or so goes the story. The capital does seem to have been swallowed by the sea, so maybe there's a little truth in it. The Naga princess came from a place called Mani Palavam, which sounds really quite a lot like Palava. Although this is the only book in which the name appears anywhere in ancient history. It's not altogether clear where Mani Palavam is supposed to have been, it's supposed to be an island, although some people think it, it was the peninsula of Sri Lanka, which might have looked a little bit like an island if you squint. And the suggestion of some historians is that this baby boy, the son of the Chola king, was washed ashore, he was found and he was saved, and he was made into king of the territory north of the Cholas, the, the land we're in this episode. And for some reason, he made it into an independent kingdom and he named it not after his father or his father's dynasty, but after the birthplace, the homeland of his mother. So that's our second attempt at match the word origin inferred game. And it scores pretty well. Good use of neglected texts. The Manai Mekalai isn't read very widely nowadays. It's got a good story behind it. And even better, it matches some of the historical texts that we have elsewhere. Because the Pallavas themselves make a few references to their kingdom being founded because of a Naga woman. In an old text, which was probably by a Pallava king, it says that the Pallava dynasty are the descendants of a famous Brahmin warrior and a Naga princess. And a later Pallava inscription says that the kingdom was obtained by marrying a Naga princess. That doesn't exactly match the story we've just heard, because here the Naga princess is married and she kind of lives in the kingdom apparently, but at least it involves a person of the right ethnicity. A Naga. Although, actually that's not very impressive, because... In this part of South Indian literature and thought, 
Nagas are sometimes just a stand-in for the people who have lived in this land a long time. If you want to claim a connection with the land, you can claim to be a descendant of the Naga. But not too direct a descendant, because many South Indians of the time saw the Nagas as, as primitives. Red, curled lips, shiny teeth, a lasso in one hand, always willing to cause trouble. Good for a fling, bad for an inheritance. Also, this attempt, this play of the match the word origin in third game, has a little bit too much name matching. The place that Mani Mekalai goes to is called Mani Pallava. And we make a connection between Mani Pallava and the Pallavas. But Mani Mekalai and Mani Pallava mean pretty nearly the same thing. Mekalai means creeper, Pallava means a shoot of a bush or a tree. And this is the only time that Mani Pallava ever gets mentioned anywhere in ancient Indian literature. So it seems like it's just a play on words between the heroine and the land she visited. And the use of Pallava is pretty much incidental and unconnected to the dynasty. Overall, good play of the game, good use of story, but not yet full marks. The final play of Match the Word, Origin Inferred is also pretty good, but I'm going to leave you to judge which is the best. We know that centuries before the Pallava kings came along, Kanchi was ruled by a poet, King Ilanan Tirayan. King Tirayan was a pretty big deal, especially amongst poets. He funded that poem that we talked about at the beginning, the one that's a sort of travel guide through the land. And the idea was, bards would hear this poem, and they'll be guided through to his capital city, to, to country, where he, being such a brilliant patron of the arts, would listen to them and would sponsor their poems. King Tyrion was even a poet himself. Here's a sample of him doing some proper kingly poeming. The cart of royal protection that has moved over the world, like the cart made by joining the plank of two wheels, will move easily along the road without mishap if the driver is efficient. But if he cannot drive well, it will all during the day sink in the mud of hate and give rise to a series of disasters. Here's the wordplay. King Tyrion. Tyrion is a sort of creeper, which, as we've noticed, is... A little bit similar to the meaning of Pallava. King Tyrion is also called a, a Tondaiman, a seaman. So maybe we can combine the two stories and say that King Tyrion was the same baby boy who was washed up on the shore. The same baby boy who his father was looking for and went up and down the coastline. I like this play of the game because I like the characters. And King Tyrion was definitely king of country. So points for characters and content, but a sort of creeper in a shoot is a pretty thin thing to put your weight on. So there we have it, a good series of the old match the word origin inferred game. And it really is a clever game. Although I'm making fun of it a little bit, I don't mean to disparage the people who play it. They're certainly much better at keeping all the facts in their head and, and joining the dots than I am. Making light of things is just the sort of thing a casual history podcast gets up to. But what have we learnt? Well, maybe not too much about the Pallavas.
not for the first time, asking about the distant origins of a group of people turns out to be a distraction. But at least there were some good stories along the way. Over the centuries, our valley had remained a loose collection of settlements, mostly herders producing just enough to get by, with a single city on the river, Kanchi. All of this was about to change with the coming of the Pallavas. And we can almost tell the history of the Pallava family and the history of our valley at the same time. The Pallava family had been ruling this and that for a few centuries, it seems. But a snooty person might say they'd never been very significant in the, in the broader scheme of things. Reconstructing the history of the early Pallava kings, even their orders is another one of those word puzzles. I reckon I've bored you enough with that sort of thing already in this episode, so we'll skip it. In the years coming up to 600 AD, Something must have been going on in the political era of India because several dynasties rise to the top almost out of nowhere. This was the time when Harsha's grandfather was establishing a kingdom up in North India. This was the time when the first Chaulokyas were making their mark in Karnataka. And in our valley, this was the time when the Pallavas were establishing themselves. The first of the Pallava kings to have a big impact on the landscape was Simhavishnu. His son called him the mountain who bore the weight of the Pallava family. It's a typically beautiful turn of phrase. I love it. You can almost imagine this stern old man of the mountain on the throne, who seems, at least to his sons, to take each thing with the calm solidity of rock, to be driven by thought and not by pain. But that one line is about as close as we get to the personality of the man. Simavishnu changed the land of the Pallavas by expanding it. He took his army south and he defeated the Cholas, the old great kingdom, one of the three crown kings of South India. They were nestled in the valley of the river to the south of our land. And adding this valley to the lands of the Pallavas was even more important than beating the mighty Cholas. Because where... The valley of Simhavishnu's homeland was dry, where the river ran only during some of the year. Down south, down in Chola land, the river flowed steadily throughout the year, and the land was famously rich. Even in ancient times, it had been marked by rows of settlements, and there was that sure sign of abundant food and abundant water. The different tribes and groups living in that valley were all living in peace with one another. And there's more. When Simhavishnu conquered Chola territory, you might have expected him to write inscriptions about how he defeated this ancient, powerful, mighty people. But the inscriptions don't really go on about the might and the prestige of defeating the Cholas. They talk about the Chola crops, the tall sugarcane. The places where you could wander for hours amongst the groves of palm trees. The lands where the rice fields were so tall they looked like forests. By the by, we owe a, a bit of personal thanks to Simhavishnu, even ignoring his impact on the landscape of our valley. He enjoyed the work of a young poet 
by the name of Damodara, name not on the test, and he invited Damodara to the court at Kanchi. He must have made a persuasive enough offer because the young poet was soon at court, and the young poet liked it so much there, loved Kanchi so much that he settled down, he married a local woman. They had a child, a child had a child, and thus was born one of the great writers of ancient India, Dundin, the young poet's grandson. We've already heard in other episodes a fair bit from his Ten Princes story, and we'll probably be hearing a good deal more of him next season. So, thanks to Simha Vishnu, without whom there would be no invitation, there'd be no settling down, there'd be no child, and there'd be no Ten Princes. The next king to have an impact on our land was Mahendra Varman, son of Simha Vishnu. He was the poet and playwright we heard from last episode. And he spent his time trying to consolidate the land. He tried to get a firmer hold on the old Jola lands his father had conquered, now in the south of Pallava territory. And the king, the new king, passed out land to Brahmins. Here, have this village and and keep it until the sun and the moon don't shine anymore. And by the way, build a water tank, making it a good, stable, thriving place. This is about as good a way as you can imagine of making your people loyal to you. They have to be loyal, of course, because they're grateful for you giving them their home. But also, we know from inscriptions in the area that Brahmins could lose their villages if the dynasty which gave it to them fell. Suppose someone gave you a village, they gave you a lovely inscription with it saying it's yours until the sun and moon ends and so forth. Lovely. Only here comes another ruler who conquers your village and he doesn't care too much about the inscription. Pretty soon you're off your land. It happened at least sometimes in this period of South Indian history. The Brahmin villages given by the Pallava kings would have started to change the landscape. Especially down south in in Chola land, which is very rich and fertile, they were packed closely together. They formed a Brahmin country. And they were almost always asked to build irrigation, a tank or a well. And because they formed these stable, well-resourced communities, many of them would later become the centres of cities or large towns. So what Mahendravarman is doing is sowing the seeds of urban growth across the region. Now up north in, in our valley, in Tondainadu, things were starting to change too. There was irrigation, artificial water brought into the dry valley where the river failed. Now artificial irrigation of one form or another had been going on for a hundred years or more. Perhaps it was started by the early Pallava queens, but now things were changing. Tanks and wells were cropping up almost everywhere. There was a network of canals. There were channels dug to direct spring water from the hills to the people who needed them. And much more besides. Often these irrigation works were named after a Pallava king or one of his local henchmen, one of his feudatories. And all of this irrigation was needed because... Under these Pallava kings, kings like Mahendra Varman, the old grazing lands started to be turned over more and more to crops. Lands which had once been populated by roving herdsmen turned into farmers rooted in the soil, farmers who would need a fixed irrigation system. 
It said that there were 24 cottons in the land, 24 camps, areas where people would graze their animals. And as farming increased, these 24 camps were put to a new purpose. Trading towns, nagarums, started to appear, one perhaps at the heart of each of these old 24 regions. And they were ringed by farming villages, who now, with this new irrigation, started to produce more than just what they needed to get by, started to produce a surplus they could trade in the market town to feed the folk in the Nagarums. And at the centre of this new system, the city of Kanchi grew. It became Kanchi Managaram, Kanchi the great market town. The Pallavas seem to have consciously found ways to trade this new surplus. If you follow the river whether it's dry or wet, from the capital downstream until you meet the sea, there you'll find the Pallava port, the port they developed. It was a place to send the trade goods from the great market cities and get luxuries for the new urban elite into the city. And there you'll find Roman amphorae, so Roman wine was imported here. And after the Roman trade dried up, when Rome sort of disappeared from the international trade system, they shifted their attention to Southeast Asia. So you find beads, which are one of the important uh, items of trade with Southeast Asia and India. And there are plenty of Roman coins found and other coins found around there and near the capital too. So with the surplus and the Roman or the Southeast Asian gold pouring in, King Mahendravarman started to invest in the great glorious projects. He carved the earliest cave temples in the region. Mahendra Varman seems to have marvelled at his own achievement. A house built for the gods, he boasts, without brick or mortar or metal or timber. And he built freestanding temples of elegant stone. In the capital city itself, there are three in our period. A large one dedicated to Vishnu, if I remember, and two dedicated to Shiva. The start of a network of temples in that city. Others were built down by the sea at the town of the wrestler, named after the king himself. And they were built in this simple, unadorned style, particularly when you compare it to places like Ajanta and Ellora, the great cave temple complexes further north. The images carved here are, are shallower, but they're refined, they're restrained. The ornamentation is simple. The jewellery on the figures is plain. This is the first carving into stone of a refined, restrained aesthetic culture, hitherto only carved into wood. So Tondai Nadu was being organised into a land that produced abundance, abundance great enough to produce these great works of culture. Just at that moment, Mahendra Varman lost it all. Over to the east, the kingdom of the Chaulokyas had been growing, and they had an army powerful enough to beat back Emperor Harsha himself. And when they came to Tondai Nadu, Mahendra Varman was beaten back, just as the emperor had been. Probably the attack came from the north, the kings who owed their allegiance to Mahendra Varman falling silent up there. And then the enemy army came into our valley, crushing opposition, as the enemy inscription boasts, the glory of the Pallavas 
was obscured by dust, the land returning once again to dryness as the Pallavas cowered behind the walls of their city. Mahendravarman, though, found a way. He beat the enemy back, or at least held them to enough of a stalemate that they went home. The battle happened probably just a couple of hours' walk from the capital city. There's some debate, by the way, over whether this was really during the time of Mahendravarman or the next king, but today I've decided it's probably Mahendra's problem. The north of Tondainadu seems to have been lost to the enemy, for now at least. But not for long. Because the king's son inherited his throne. The new king was called Narasimhavarman. And if his father had been a man of letters, a poet, a playwright, an inventor, Narasimhavarman was a man of arms and fists. He was nicknamed the Wrestler, and he was brilliant in battle. He took the fight to the enemy, the Chalokyas. He drove them back into their lands and beyond, pushing them back to the brink of their own capital, returning the treatment his father had been made to suffer. And more, because he pushed on into the capital, Badami, and he burnt it. And its king, the same king who had humiliated his father, was never heard from again. Narasimhavarman is said to have beaten all the great powers, the Cholas, the Cheras, the Calabras. But he may not have done too much for his homeland. Many assume that Narasimhavarman constructed the, the great temples of the Pallavas down by the edge of the ocean. And that's natural enough because that place is now given his name. It's the, the town of wrestlers. But it does seem that, that most were built by his father. So it's not clear that Narasimhavarman advanced the culture of the Pallavas that much. And irrigation also seems to have taken a turn for the worse. There are no irrigation tanks that we found with Narasimhavarman's name on them. Actually, there are none with his father's name, but that, that besides, it's possible that Narasimhavarman was so focused on conquest that he didn't build up the infrastructure of his land. And that might have had a big impact on the land. That story we heard, the story of the dancing girl's daughter, she came to Kanchi with her bottomless bowl of food to save it from drought. Because once again, the land was dry and the people were starving. That would never happen again, so long as the Pallavas ruled. But that's a story for another season. Every week we read something from the original sources, and this week the choice was easy. We're going to read a bit from the story of Mani Mekalai as she visits Kanchi to feed its people. It goes like this. Mani Mekalai was anxious to meet her mothers at the city with the bent-bowed army of Cheren. This is the city of Kanchi. In this story, it's ruled by the Cheras. She passed through the outskirts of the city, which resemble an enemy king and the army defending the fort. Through the covered drainage, the scented water from the houses used by damsels to wash their dark tresses, the water bearing the washed-off sandal paste by young men and women bathing in the lake with contrivance. The fragrant water 
sprayed by squirts and syringe on the auspicious birthday gaiety of the king, the holy water from the fair hands of the devotees of five virtues to anoint the divine feet of the great sages. The incense water poured from pots by the domestic virtuous people as an act of arms. The water from the soaked billets ground in homogeneous composition according to the set method in wealthy mansions. As all such water flows everywhere, the fierce crocodiles and alligators and fish lose their stinking flesh smell. The spotted drones were humming over lotus flowers in the moat forming like a rainbow. The contrivances springing surprise attacks on invaders, occupying prominence in the well-guarded fort and in the space abutting the rampart. Greenwooded forest giving a coverage and next to it multitudes of industries and next to it mansions as though silver hills are scoped out. The lime plaster in mansions sheds brilliance like moons and she entered the portal with flags aloft. The well-guarded wide and big streets with watch and wards and portals. Fishermen selling different kinds of fish and hawkers of white salt. Those who sell toddy and upham and pidu. Those who sell mutton and betel and five aromatics in their streets. The potters, brass vessel makers and coppersmiths. The goldsmiths and those who smelt gold. The carpenters sawing the timber and the artisans working on models and lime plaster. The painters who can paint boon-giving gods. The cobblers who work on leather and tailors tailoring. Those who weave garlands and those who calculate time. The punners who can swell raptures. Good tunes with constancy and harmony with place, instruments and voice. The street populated by the above different kinds of people. The street populated by those who cut mother of pearls with their saw. And the street lived by those who make string of pearls. The street of dancing girls who know the exclusive royal dance and the dance of the commoners. The street of merchandise with the eight varieties of pulses are heaped up separately according to their kinds. The street where the minstrels live, the street where the prostitutes sell pleasures, the wealthy street where the weavers weave multicoloured clothes with fine yarn which defeats scrutiny. The street with mansions of goldsmiths who determine the fineness of gold by the touchstone. The street where merchants sell different gems. The street where the Vedic pundits rear three fires without let up. The grand royal street and the great street of the ministers. The street where other dignitaries of importance live. The assemblies, public halls, trijunctures and squares. The beautiful street where the mahouts train the newly brought elephants and the jockeys who train the new horses tinkling with golden bells. The artificial hills, the low flowing waterfalls, the fragrant pleasure gardens which induce one's desire more and more. The good watered ponds sorted by Tevas forgetting heaven. The arms trees, the great halls and the golden theatres of assembly. And the monasteries wherein Nitanams are picturesque and beautiful paintings. All these she saw and was exhilarated. That's it for this week. Thank you very much for listening. I hope you enjoyed it. And if you have been enjoying the podcast, please consider donating to my wife's charity, 
the Snail Situ Patrick Memorial Fund. There are details on the website. There's a link in the description. I really must update that website. Until next time, have a great week and take care.